Well, I don't know about you, but I would say that it is enough this morning. It is worth getting ready and coming here just to gather to sing that song. All glory be to Christ. Praise God that we get to gather and sing those words together. What a joy, what a gift from God to gather and sing praises to him. I just want to uh, start by saying Happy New Year to all of you. I trust that you have, at this point, by this point, diligently stacked up all of your New Year's resolutions for this new year and new decade, maybe. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're that type of person. I was recently talking to my wife, Jennifer, about New Year's resolutions, and I jokingly asked her if she wanted to hear all 14 of mine, (laughs) to which she said, no, not at all. Not really 14, but I am a resolution-oriented person for sure. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have a long list. Unwritten or written, one way or another, they're there. But maybe that is not you. Some of us are wired that way, of course, but others are not. Either way, the big question for all of us as we enter into a new year and into a new decade is this. Are you taking this opportunity to freshly commit yourself to the exalted Son of God? The one that we talked about in the month of December for Advent, the Philippians to Christ, that one That son of God, are you taking this opportunity, whether you are a resolution-oriented person or not, are you taking this opportunity to freshly commit yourself to him? To rely on his strength, to find joy in his gospel, to love his people. Thinking of joy in particular... I was reading this week through Mark 1, a little bit of Mark 1, and it struck me that as Jesus began to preach, he preached, repent, and believe in the gospel. And the word gospel is good news. And what that tells us at the very beginning as we enter into a new year is that the Christian life is by nature a life of joy. It is a life of joy because for the Christian, at the center of life is good news. What that tells us is that for the Christian, all is good. All is well in Christ. Because for the Christian, good news has captured that person and defines that person. So if nothing else, would you commit yourself this year to rejoice in the gospel. As the Apostle Paul says throughout Philippians, as I've mentioned before, would you at least commit yourself to this, to rediscovering the good news, to letting the good news be good in your life unto joy in your daily experience, regardless of your circumstances. Well, today we return to the book of Genesis after a month of Advent. And I want to thank Mark for preaching last week while my family was out of town from from Acts 2. If you haven't listened to that sermon, please go and listen to that. It is on the website. It's on the podcast. But if you would now at this point, please go with me to Genesis chapter 46. That is where we are. For some of you, this is a joyful occasion. You say, wow, we're back in Genesis, maybe, some of you. Uh, For others of you, still Genesis uh, yes, still Genesis, but only five chapters to go. So we, we are almost there. The finish line is chapter 50. And we'll be done with Genesis, so we are almost there. I, I, it, will, it is always sad for me to leave a book uh, because I have invested so many hours in it. Uh, but it is also a great, a great uh, source of happiness to enter into a new book and to see the riches that God has for us in another place of Scripture. Isn't it wonderful that God's Word just so beautifully fits together and that He speaks and shows His glory on every page of Scripture. We can go anywhere in the Bible and we see His 
glory. But now we are in Genesis chapter 46. We ended back in late November at a climactic point. Chapter 45, as I said then, uh, is a climax type of chapter. And it's the chapter where the brothers are reunited. Joseph is reunited with his brothers at the end or at the beginning of chapter 45. It has been over 22 years since Joseph's brothers maliciously sold him into slavery in Egypt. Remember, they were going to kill him, and then they were going to leave him in the pit, and then they sold him to some Midianite traders who were passing by, who then took Joseph down into Egypt. They did it because they hated Joseph. Uh, as we read in the passage preceding that, Genesis 37, it repeatedly it says they, they hated him, they hated him, they hated him all the more. This is a stack of pancakes of hate in their hearts against their brother who is the favorite of their father. So 22 years have passed. Over these years, God has done a mighty work. God has exalted Joseph over Egypt during a, time of severe, during a time of severe famine. Remember that God had brought to Pharaoh dreams that there'd be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of unprecedented famine. Famine so great that it would overshadow the good plentiful years. And so God has placed Joseph there in Egypt to store up food during the time of plenty and to distribute food during the time of famine. This is famine not just in Egypt, but all over the world around Egypt. And so we have Joseph's brothers eventually coming from Canaan, making their way to Egypt to get food. Just like everyone else, they too are on the verge of starving. They need food. And so they come to Egypt, and therefore they come to the most exalted man in Egypt, Joseph, their brother. They do not know it is Joseph. And Joseph subjects his brothers to a series of tests involving their youngest brother, Benjamin, who is Joseph's full brother. They have expressed guilt and remorse over what they did to Joseph. They have collectively stood by Benjamin. And most importantly, as Joseph is, is subjecting them to these tests, we see their leader, the, the representative of the whole crew of brothers, Judah, offers to give his life as a substitute for Benjamin. And primarily, he does this out of love for their father, Jacob. Remember, they had sold their brother into slavery and they had come home and said, Dad, Joseph's dead. He got eaten by a wild animal, or at least they implied that, because they took his garment, dipped it in goat's blood, and presented it to their father. Their father entered into a deep state of grief. But now, Joseph sees through the words of Judah, not only a willingness to substitute himself for Benjamin, but also a deep love for their father. The father whom they have treated so poorly in lying to him and stealing away his son, Joseph. When Joseph hears Judah's offer to substitute himself in the place of Benjamin, it is too much to bear. When Joseph hears these words, it crushes his emotions. He, he can't hold himself together. And in a dramatic scene at the beginning of chapter 45, he reveals himself to his brothers. What a climax this is. After we've been walking through the story of these brothers going back to chapter 37, now Joseph tells them, the one you've been coming and presenting yourself before to get food, the highest official in Egypt, it's your brother whom at 17 you sold into slavery. Joseph embraces his brothers. He tells them, do not be afraid. And he tells them, do not argue with one another. Why so forgiving? Why is Joseph so forgiving towards these men who put him into a situation where he was in prison for all these years, 
where he was a servant, a slave, not with his father, missing his household. Why so forgiving? Why so quick to reconcile? And the answer comes in verses 7 to 8 of chapter 45. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So listen to this. So it was not you, my brothers. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a, a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. In other words, Joseph tells his brothers, look, everything that has happened since I was 17 is the work of God. It's the work of a sovereign, loving God who through your sin and these circumstances is preserving our family, brothers. That's what Joseph is telling his brothers. That's the reason why he's so forgiving. That's the reason why he is so willing to be reconciled to these brothers. And I want to repeat here something I said then. Especially as we move into a new year. This is the path to reconciliation. It is not hope that that person who has offended you will come around at some point. It is not simply because they have come to you and pleaded with you for forgiveness. The path to reconciliation is a deep trust in a sovereign, good, loving God who even in your afflictions through other people is sovereign. And that God has, has brought things into your life, sometimes through the sin of other people, that is good for you. That is the path to forgiveness as you enter into a new year and decade. When we came to the end of chapter 45, we saw that Joseph sends his brothers back to Canaan to get their father, to get Jacob, and to bring him to Egypt. In fact, it's interesting that when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, the first thing he says, the thing that he can't wait to say is, go get dad, go get my father, and bring him to me. When the brothers return to Canaan and they tell Jacob that Joseph is still alive, Jacob is at first stunned. He's, he's numb. He doesn't believe them. He's skeptical. But then he decides to go. He's convinced. Verses 27 to 28. You can look at them if you'd like. Chapter 45. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So when the brothers come back all these years later and they say, Joseph is alive. He's stunned at first, but then he decides it's true. And he's going to go to his son. So today, as we enter, all that's reviewed just to kind of get us back in. It's difficult after five weeks. Think, how do we, how do I succinctly uh, make uh, all that we've covered so far clear so that we can now move into chapter 46? But hopefully that situates us, that situates you where we're at in the story here of Joseph, as we enter into chapter 46, as we do that, we get the movement of Jacob and his family to Egypt. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Family on the Move. If you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. The Family on the Move. Genesis 46, this is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. 
and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. His sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hetron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Yemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yakin, Sohar, and Shaul, the sons of a Canaanite, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Peretz, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Peretz were Hetzron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yov, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Yaleel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of God, Siphion, Hagi, Shuni, Etzbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Yimna, Yishva, Yishvi, Berea, with Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Berea, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Yazil, Guni, Yezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. In order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. You can go ahead and be seated. If you are... Uh, pregnant or about to have a child, you have a lot of options here for names for your, chill, for your child. So you can consult chapter 46 of Genesis, at least for that. Let's pray and thank the Lord for his word and ask that he speak to us this morning. Father, we thank you for your kindness in giving us your word. We thank you that we can come together with joy 
and with reverence, and we can hear from you, and that you speak every time your word goes forth. That we don't have to wait for some sort of impression or some sort of uh, providential stirring or set of circumstances that will direct us in life, but we simply walk moment by moment letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We thank you, Father, that a Christ-centered Bible lies before us, opened. We pray that you would speak to us this morning through it. We, we know that you promise you will, God, and we trust you in that. Help our unbelief. We pray that you'd be merciful to us this morning in convicting us of our sins, uprooting sins, transforming us. We thank you for Adam's testimony and just the testimony of what you can do, your power, the power of your grace. We've seen it in the brothers of Joseph and their hearts. We heard of it this morning in Adam's story. We know of it in our own story. God, you are gracious and mighty. We praise you this morning. We ask that you would be with us now as we sit under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the family is on the move in chapter 46, the holy family. I love the way uh, in, in reading through one of the commentaries I read, I uh, try for anything I preach is to always read Calvin's commentary. And one of the things that Calvin frequently says of, of the patriarchs in his commentary is he calls them holy Abraham or holy Isaac or holy Jacob. This is the holy family of God. The holy family of God is on the move And as we see this move, I think we get three things. You'll see these up here on the slide. First, we have the relocation itself. Second, we have the register of names involved in the relocation. And then finally, we have the reunion of Jacob with his son, Joseph. So the relocation, the register, and then finally, the reunion. So let's begin with the relocation. Look at verses 1 to 7 again. I want to focus in on these verses. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, His sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. These verses give us Jacob's movement from Canaan to Egypt. From the promised land that God brought Abraham to, to this pagan land of Egypt. He is now convinced that his son Joseph is still alive in Egypt and has requested that he relocate there. Remember, it is not just the message that Joseph is alive, but it is also the message that Joseph says, Come here, come to me, Father, and your needs will be provided for. And notice that for Jacob, this move must begin. It's very important to see this. For him, holy Jacob, This move must begin with the Lord. The God who called his grandfather out of Mesopotamia. The God who has promised land, descendants, and blessing for this family and their descendants. And, I should add, to the whole world through them. The God who has promised all these things. The God who has made a covenant with this one family with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has been with Jacob personally for many years. Jacob begins with this God. So Jacob goes to Beersheba 
the main site of his father's sojournings. This is where Isaac spent much of his time. Abraham had been there. This is a key place of worship going back to Abraham. And so, so Jacob returns to Beersheba, this historic place for the covenant family in worship to God. There at Beersheba, he sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And in doing so, Jacob is really doing two things. First, he is reminding himself of God's past faithfulness. As he goes to Beersheba and he sacrifices to the Lord, it is an act in which he reminds himself of all that has gone before. All the faithfulness of God to him throughout his life, to his father, and to his grandfather, with whom he probably sat and talked for many hours in the tent before elderly Abraham died. And so he is reminding himself of God's past, past faithfulness by offering this, these sacrifices. But he is also calling on the Lord to be with him now. He is setting out on something entirely new. This is a massive transition in Jacob's life. This is probably more of a massive transition in his life than any of us in this room have ever experienced. Some of us have uprooted life and moved across the country or across the world. Or maybe we've had very significant shifts in life that have altered our lives for good. But very few of us, perhaps none of us, has had a kind of pivotal moment like this. And so he begins by looking to the Lord. I think it's worth asking on January the 5th, 2020. I think it's worth asking, is this your attitude as you move into this new year? As you set out on this journey into a new decade. Is the attitude of you Christian the same as what we see in Jacob? That it must begin with the Lord. Of course I must remind myself as I set out on this journey of all of God's past faithfulness. And I must call out to him in total reliance. Asking that he would be with me in the days ahead. We don't have to be resolution-oriented people to live intentionally unto the Lord and to rely on Him. God gives us, in His grace, common grace, these natural start-over moments, right? These natural Mondays. It's a, it's a new week, a new year, a new decade. God has built these into creation. We know that God uh, has us function according to time. At the beginning of Genesis, as we read in creation, that God has made the heavens for times and seasons. And that we look at uh, the way that the earth uh, rotates on its axis and goes around the sun. We, we know that these are, are, the, are the ways we measure a day and a year. And so, God has made us to where he gives us these opportunities. These are opportunities to say... I'm going to reevaluate life. And I'm going to live for his glory and dependence on him. What follows? This act of sacrifice and worship are two things. Confirmation and obedience. So I want to take a moment now to look at each of those. Confirmation and obedience. First, confirmation. God comes to Jacob in a night vision and confirms that he is right to go down to Egypt. Jacob has already set out to go see his son, Joseph. But God wants to confirm for him that this is his plan. This is his purpose. That God wants him, God wills him to go with his family to Egypt. He should not fear. He should not be afraid to leave the land of promise. Remember, this is not just uprooting life and moving to a new place. This is Jacob leaving the land of promise that he's been in for decades. The place to which God directed him. The place that God brought him to. He's now going to leave this promised land. This is no small thing for the covenant man. This is no small thing for the grandson of Abraham. Whom God called out of Ur to go to a land that he would show him. God 
confirms for him that this is good and right and that this needs to happen. And God also confirms that Joseph is in fact alive and waiting on him in Egypt. So if there is any doubt that remains in Jacob's mind that his sons are up to something dubious, that something is going on that's just not quite right. You know, we, I see the chariots, I see all this, but I'm just, maybe that lingering sense of doubt, God squashes that in his mind by letting him know Joseph lives. And Joseph will close your eyes. Notice Jacob's response. I want to pause for a moment and just point out Jacob's response when God speaks to him. Jacob, Jacob, here I am. This is the same language that we got for Abraham. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 22, when God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to go and sacrifice your son Isaac. And when God comes to Abraham and speaks to him, what we find there is this same language. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. In the case of Jacob here, it is both expectant and receptive. It is expecting God to respond to his seeking. He has gone to Beersheba and he is making sacrifices to the Lord. He is calling out to the Lord. He is seeking and knocking and he expects that God will answer. Do we expect God to answer when we pray? Do we expect that he's going to listen? Or do we just shoot words into the air because it's some kind of religious duty? Or because if we don't do it, we'll feel guilty. Or because maybe he's there, he'll hear 25% of it and say yes to 10% of it. The truth is that God hears every word of the heart of his people before it's even spoken. He knew the words that we would pray before he made the heavens and the earth. Do we expect him to respond when we seek him? And we also see here with Jacob... He is ready to receive God's word. Here I am. What would you say to me, God? Let me ask you this question. When you open your Bible in 2020, are you going to open it and just do your reading plan? Put your bookmark back in and shut it and put it back on the shelf. Check that box and come to it again tomorrow. Are you going to open God's word and say, God, I'm listening. Speak. Because that's where God speaks. When you open up that Bible and read that genealogy even or that list of instructions for building the ark or all those different burnt offerings or the ways in which a person with leprosy is to be cleansed before returning to the community or whatever that you would say to the God who wrote those scriptures, the God who saved you, who pierced you in the heart with his word, speak, God, I'm listening. If nothing else, that should be the attitude moving into a new year for a Christian. We see this receptivity here in the covenant man echoing his initial call of Jacob in chapter 28 God gives him four reasons four reasons that he should go to Egypt and I'm going to go through these quickly four reassurances to quiet his fears Jacob's fears are raging inside of him maybe for various reasons having to leave uprooting everything he's elderly he's being carried God is a God who attacks fear by the way God does not want his people to be afraid. So God reassures him. Four reasons, four reassurances. Verses three to four, I'll go through these first. There I will make you into a great nation. Now this is something we've seen before. God has been promising a great nation all along. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now God says to Jacob, listen to this. There I will make you a great nation. What? I'm not going to make you a great nation in the land of promise. I'm going to make you a great nation in Egypt, a foreign pagan land. And then God says, as a second reassurance, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Remember, aren't these the words of God in in Genesis 28? When God comes to, 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 uh, to Jacob before he's going to go to Laban's house. And God reminds Jacob. I'll be with you. 
You're going to have my presence. And you know, every Christian has God with him or her. Every moment of every day, God is with you, Christian. You are never alone. In the bottom of any pit, the depth of the sea, on the highest mountain where you can barely breathe, God is with you. Never, ever leave you personally. He's not just kind of present like a vapor. He's present personally to every covenant believer, every, every Christian. A third reassurance I will also bring you up again. Now this refers, per, this is personal as well as collective as a people. A God will bring Jacob up again to Canaan after he dies. Joseph will close his eyes, he'll die, and there will be this massive entourage of Egyptians. Uh, the people living in Canaan will be blown away by it. Uh, these Egyptians will read about that. They'll come back to Canaan and they will, they will mummify Jacob's body and bring him to Canaan and bury him in the cave of Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac are buried. I will bring you back up again. But not just personally, collectively. Israel, Israel, the collective people, I will bring you back up again. And this points to Moses. Moses, God through Moses will bring the people back up out of Egypt. And through Joshua will bring them into the land of promise. Genesis 15, 13 to 14. This is what God said to Abram in a vision. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is talking about slavery in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God will bring them up out of Egypt in his time. And then fourthly, As a fourth assurance in these words of God to Jacob, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, this is so sweet for his heart for so many reasons. But remember that that Jacob anticipates dying in grief. His, His whole life since Joseph has been grief, mourning. He's in a state, a perpetual state of mourning. He expects to die in grief. And remember when Benjamin leaves, he says, if I am bereaved of my sons, I am bereaved of my son. He expects that he will probably lose Benjamin and Simeon won't come back. He's been in a very low place. And here God tells him in a moment, you're going to die in peace. And Joseph is going to be standing right there in front of your face. He's going to close your eyes. So that's God's confirmation. But secondly, we see Jacob's obedience. Notice that he does not hesitate a single bit to do exactly what God commanded him. We've seen this from the beginning. Going back to Noah. We we saw in the case of Noah this, this kind of God speaks. Yes, do. God says do this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. And in fact, if you read through the Pentateuch, if you read through the first five books of the Bible after Exodus and you see Moses, God's given Moses all of these commands and it it constantly says, and all that the Lord commanded him, Moses did. Goes all the way back to the beginning. This is, let me be clear on this. This is the covenantal response. Meaning, For those who can rightly partake of the Lord's Supper, who are true believers, this is what it means to know and love God, is to obey him. It's what it has meant from the very beginning of the Bible. To live as though you believe in God and love God and trust God, but do your own thing is to be a liar. It is to not be a true Christian. It is to live as your own king, as your own Deity, it is to worship yourself. It is to go in the way of Eve, who looked at the fruit, saw that it was beautiful, able to make one wise, that it would be tasty, and she ate. It is to go in the way 
of self-rule rather than God's rule. So for you who think that you're a Christian but you don't obey the Lord, you're not. We all sin. We all disobey God. But as Paul says in Romans 7, speaking of the Christian, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. If you don't delight in the law of God in your inner being, and from the heart obey God by nature, you're not a Christian. Trust Christ this morning. That's, those are the people for whom Christ came. He came for the disobedient of heart. He came for the godless rebel. He came for you. Put your trust in this Christ who can save. Don't live a lie. Don't deceive yourself. Trust this Christ. He will save you. He will wash away all your sins. So we see also that it is comprehensive. Jacob's response is comprehensive. He uproots his entire life and family. And he moves away from the promised land to Egypt. Using Pharaoh's wagons, everyone and everything goes. Nothing stays behind. Verse 6, all his offspring with him. Verse 7, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Everything goes, Jacob and his whole family. Before we move on, I want you to notice the delay. Consider the time that has elapsed since Jacob last heard from the Lord. There's a reason that I selected chapter 35 for Adam to read earlier. And the reason that I selected that as the reading for this morning is because that was the last major time that the Lord spoke to Jacob. Do you understand that? Over two decades it has been. Since God has, at least as we've read, since God has come to him, manifested himself to him, and spoken into his life. This is delayed comfort. So I want to ask you a question. What if God, in his sovereign wisdom and goodness, what if God chooses to delay your comfort in this way? Maybe he's already chosen to do that. And you just need to hear this morning that it's okay. He will sustain you in the waiting and in the sorrow. Maybe it's coming for you. And you won't hear comfort for a very long time. Take heart. The strength of the spirit. He will be with you. As you must Wait. So now we leave the relocation and I want to move to the register. For your sake and mine, I will not reread the genealogy. In verses 8 to 27, we have another genealogy. It really has been exciting to go through the genealogies of Genesis and see them pop. Just to see uh, all that drips out of them when you squeeze them really tight. All the, all the riches that are present in these genealogies. And to see the way that it, they glued together the book. So, so both in terms of their context and in terms of their, their specific content. It, they're rich all throughout the book of Genesis. One of the reasons why topical preaching is, I think you lose something. Is because who in the world is going to have a topic and choose a genealogy to preach through? Nobody's going to do that. Nobody says, I'm going to do a 12-week a, a, a series on whatever. And I'm going to Genesis 46 or Genesis 10 or 5 or wherever. So we get to go through these expositionally and see them unfold and see how they function in the book. But we have here a genealogy, a list of names, a list of Jacob's descendants, a list of those who go with Jacob into Egypt. Verse 8. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here, but just bear with me. I won't stay here too long. When we subtract, uh-oh, we're going to do a little bit of math. When we subtract from the list Er and Onan, who died in Canaan, and when we add Jacob himself and his daughter Dina, who is mentioned in verse 15, that's how we get the number 70 noted in verse 27. And commentators wrestle over 
how exactly to get that number 70. This is the way I think that makes the most sense. Aaron and Onan did not come into Egypt. They died in Canaan. And because this is Jacob and his descendants, his entire household, we need to include Jacob and Dina wasn't counted, but another daughter, Sarah, was. And so we need to include her. So that makes the most sense to me for the 70. And the number 66, noted in verse 26, includes the descendants of Jacob who travel with him. And so we have to minus Jacob himself, as well as Joseph and his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So when we subtract those four, we get 66. So there you go. Maybe now you're, you can just tune back in. But I just wanted you to make sure that, I just wanted to make sure that you uh, have at least some commentary on those numbers the 66 and the 70. This register or listing of names comes in four parts. We have the descendants of Jacob through Leah, through Zilpah, through Rachel, and through Bilhah. You'll remember that these are the two daughters, Leah and Rachel, the two daughters of Laban, who become Jacob's wives. You can go back and read how that happens. It's pretty, pretty dramatic. And then we have the two maidservants that are given to each of those wives, or one maidservant given to each of those wives. And we know that the two ladies in competition to produce babies, they give their maidservant over to Jacob and say, hey, produce babies for me through her. And so that's how we get these four wives. The number of, of children for Leah and Rachel is twice as many as the number for Zilpah and Bilhah, which emphasizes their legitimacy as the true wives. And it, and it delegitimizes, in a sense, this practice, going back to Abram and Sarah, this practice of giving your maidservant to your husband so that she can produce babies for you. Notice that these babies are not listed under Leah and under Rachel, but they're listed under the women themselves. God is delegitimizing this practice here. However, it's interesting that only Rachel is given the title wife. In verse 19, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife. She was the wife that he worked for for so long, and it was only through trickery that Leah was switched out or Rachel was switched out for Leah. And you can go back and read that. I won't give you a synopsis of how that happened. So let's take a step back. What are we to make of this genealogy? I want to point out a few things and then we'll move to our final point. A few things. First, many descendants. Genesis 12, 2, 15, 5, 17, 6, verse 16, 18, 18, 22, 17, 26, 4, 24, 28, 14, 32, 12, 35, 11, 46, 3, 48, 4, and 19. These are places in Genesis where God promises many descendants and a great nation. And here we have this, this quite massive family when you consider what it will then go on to produce of 70 people constituted there moving into Egypt. It's a large family that anticipates the nation. Secondly, the 70 brings us back to Genesis 10 where there are 70 nations mentioned. And here I want to quote from a commentator, John Selhammer. This is what he says in connecting what we're reading here in Genesis 46, this register of names, this list of names, connecting that back to Genesis 10, when we get the spread of the people after the ark. We get the spread of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All of humanity, 70 nations mentioned. Here's what he says. It can hardly be coincidental That the number of nations in Genesis 10 is also 70. Just as the 70 nations represent all the descendants of Adam. So now the 70 sons represent all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sons of Israel. Thus, the writer has gone to great lengths to portray. Listen to this. This is beautiful. Has gone to great lengths to portray the new nation of Israel as a new humanity. And Abraham as a second Adam. The blessing that comes through Abraham and his offspring is a restoration of the original blessing of Adam. A blessing that was lost in the fall. In other words, this is God's means of undoing the fall. 
This blessing that God is bringing about through the proliferation of the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is meant to kind of constitute within itself a new humanity, a humanity that will return to God, that will return to blessing, that will return to a pre-fall world. How? How will this group of 70 lead to that? Well, fast forward many years and we find in Romans 9 verse 5, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So in this way, the number 70 points us forward to Christ. Even the very number of descendants, which brings us back to Genesis 10 and the spread of humanity, which brings us back to Adam and the blessedness there. All of this is pointing us towards the descendant of this 70 who is Christ. Folded in even to this genealogy. But there's another aspect of this genealogy that points to salvation through Christ. In only two places... Are sons in the third generation after Jacob mentioned. So we, we have Jacob's sons. And then we have his son's sons. And then it stops. But in two places we have his son's sons' sons mentioned. And no surprise. One of those is the case of Judah. Judah. Verse 12. The sons of Judah. Er, Onan, Shelah, Peretz, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Peretz were Hetzron and Hamul. Matthew 1, verses 1 to 3. We see the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Peretz, and Zerah by Tamar, and Peretz, the father of Hetzron, and Hetzron, the father of Ram. In other words, here we are, we are one step closer to the Christ. So not only does the number of descendants itself point to Christ because it points to blessedness and an entire renewed humanity, but Christ himself is being anticipated in that extra step forward through the line of Judah. As the family is on the move, the line of Christ is on the move. The line that leads to the lion of the tribe of Judah. Finally, this morning as we close, we come to that sweet reunion between Jacob and Joseph. In those final verses, we will give more attention to verses 31 to 34 next time. So for now, I want to hone in on this dramatic reunion between father and son. And also, notice the leadership of Judah coming out of the last passage. Judah is clearly the leader in this family. And so Jacob sends Judah ahead to Goshen to to set everything up for his coming and the coming of the family. But here we have verses 29 to 30. Joseph presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Now, after 22 years, Jacob sees the face of his boy. Remember, the last time he looked into the face of his son, the last time he looked into the eyes of his son, He was 17 years old. And now Joseph is around the age of 40. 22, 23 years of his life he has missed. And now he's looking at a middle-aged man. Roughly. This special son, the eldest of his beloved wife Rachel, whom he thought was dead, is now standing before him alive. And even more, He is clothed in all the splendor of Egypt. A testimony to the greatness 
of God. His power to work in nature, in circumstances, and in the hearts of kings. He sees his son, but not just his son. He sees one who has become the ruler of the greatest power on the earth at the time. Amazement would have gripped him. And that is why Joseph says, I want him to come and see me. Wants him to see his glory. Not so Joseph can be glorified, but so that the God of Israel can be glorified. The God over all. So, we see here that this is undoubtedly for Jacob a moment of absolute joy. But it is also one rooted in deep worship. He doesn't merely see his son and say, oh, my son. He sees his son and in the face of his son, he sees the faithfulness of the sovereign king. He sees the Lord has done all of this. One commentator, Alan Ross, says this says it this way. The gathering was more than a family reunion. Don't let yourself go only sentimental here as you think about father and son reuniting. That's sweet and it's good and, and, and let it simmer. But there's more than that. More than a family reunion. It was proof that God's previously revealed plans had never been set aside. In the eyes of his boy, he sees the faithfulness of his God. Regardless of your circumstances or feelings this morning. Know this, Christian. God has not set aside his plans for you. This was a dark period. Maybe you're in a dark period. Jacob, I'm sure, was tempted by Satan many times during this period to lose hope in God, to to believe that God had set him aside, set aside his promises, set aside his plan. God didn't care. But in this moment, God reminds him that no matter What circumstances he's had to face. God's been there all along. And he's been working. God will bring you to glory Christian. And you will praise him for eternity. In perfect bliss and righteousness. That's your end. Rejoice. Finally. At the end of this chapter. We see Joseph explaining the next steps. The settlement of the family in the land of Goshen. The best land. But also and catch this. Also a land separate. From the taint of Egyptian paganism. Kent Hughes says it this way. This land afforded both separation and prosperity. And this is important. The land that the children of Israel will settle in. Is not nestled right up in the heart of Egyptian society and culture. It's not right in the center of where all the Egyptians are. It's off to the side. They'll get all the food and all the blessings and all the privileges of living there. They have this rich land, but it's off to the side for these shepherds, abominated by the Egyptians. They will grow as one people. Not be uh, dispersed, not assimilate with the Egyptians, but they will grow in prosperity as one distinct, holy people. And so we see here God's provision, not just for their bodies, but for their precious souls. So as we move into 2020, behold, this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he was their God, and he is our God today and every day into eternity. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your salvation. All found in Christ. We thank you that your plan was always to do what you said to that nasty serpent. That serpent of old, Satan. That you would crush his filthy head with the foot. Of Eve's descendant. 
We praise you that that Christ, that God-man whom we read about throughout the month of December, that he humbled himself and he became man and he died on a cross reigning from the tree and you have raised him from death and exalted him to the highest place and that he has crushed and will forever crush the head of our enemy. We praise you this day, God, that all of Scripture is about his glory and his power and his eternal reign. As Peter says, his sufferings and the subsequent glories. So God, we, we bow before you. You are great and you are wise. And we are but dust. Yet through Christ, we have been made those who will shine like the stars of heaven. In this we hope, through Christ our Lord. Amen.